The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, and we return to our subject this morning of the Lord's Supper, and we are continuing to look at this beautiful picture that the Lord has given His church that talks about His death. Now, I want to go directly to the Scriptures now, so if you'll look at Matthew 26 and verse number 26 is where our text begins. And the word of God says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, once again this morning, you'll notice that we are not partaking of the Lord's Supper today. That is going to come up early next month. And so we can sort of get prepared for it now when thinking about what the Supper means. And what we've done in these past couple of weeks in the messages, we've, we've taken and, and broke down each of these statements that Jesus made when he gave the church the Lord's Supper. And I've attempted to explain to you what he meant by everything that he, that he said here. Now the Lord's Supper, of course, is the, the right that Christ gave the Christian church to memorialize his death. And all of us know as Christians that the death of Jesus Christ is the central issue in Christianity. Christ had to die for us. He, he's the one who takes our sins away. And the Bible tells us that God gave a demonstration of his supreme love for sinners. Romans says that God commended his love toward us and that while we were, yet, we were yet sinners that Christ died for us and that word commended means that God demonstrated his love to us. Now the scriptures tell us that God loved the world. God sent his own son into the world. And that scripture in John chapter 3 that you know so well, John 3.16, tells us that God showed his love to the world in a very uncommon way. He actually demonstrated that by giving his own son to die for our sins. So when we think about the death of Christ, the first aspect that always comes to our mind is the great love that God has demonstrated for it to us in, in giving Christ his son to die on the cross. But there's another issue that has to be taken up in the Lord's Supper, and that is the satisfaction that Christ made to God's justice. God could not be a just God if he just simply let people go free when they broke his law. But instead what God has done, he has displayed his justice by having Christ take the penalty of our sins upon him. And so the sin and the guilt that we had is taken upon Jesus Christ. Now in the preceding history of men, of man, uh, in Israel especially, that's what we're really referring to, uh, men were always making sacrifices. Lambs and bulls and goats and sometimes even doves were allowed to be brought when people were poor. And those animals were sacrificed, but they were only symbols. They were things that could never take away sin. 
And the cross of Christ is significant because there is where God made his own sacrifice. God didn't ask us to make a a sacrifice to satisfy his justice. We could never do that. And so God gave his own sacrifice. He gave his son, which in effect is God giving himself for us. God actually gave himself. And so he went through, he put himself through the pain and the suffering and the anguish of punishment in hell. And that sacrifice is memorialized in the supper. Jesus gave his church an ordinance to be practiced that would focus on that all-important truth that Christ died for our sins. So that's been our subject for the past two weeks. We focused on each of the statements that are made here, and I've attempted to show you what Christ meant by these things. And if the words of any prominent person are to be considered very carefully, then surely we would have to say that the words of Jesus... His words demand our utmost attention. Now, just to remind you of the areas of discussion that we've already talked about, uh, this is just a brief review. First was the transformation of the Passover. Now, the occasion of the gathering of Jesus and his disciples was Passover. Uh, I think uh, I don't need to go into the meaning of Passover again, I don't think. It's the Old Testament picture of deliverance from Egypt. And that was a yearly custom that was observed by the Jews. And this particular Passover that Jesus observed with his disciples was the last one. That's because Jesus was the real lamb. All of those other sacrifices were just symbols. They couldn't take away sin. But Jesus was the real lamb. And when he was sacrificed, there never needed to be made another sacrifice again. And so this time that we're reading about here, as it begins, it's referred to as the Last Supper because it is the very last one that is a Passover. So it starts out as a Passover meal, but it doesn't end that way. But rather, the meaning of it has been transformed. Uh, Christ transformed the meaning of it. Not the bread and, and, uh, or, or he doesn't change the bread and the wine into anything. Uh, they're still symbols. But what he changed was is he made that bread and he made that wine symbolic of his body and of his blood that were shed on, his blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. So the symbolism of the Lord's Supper becomes new. It's not like the Passover. It's no longer about deliverance from Egypt, but now it's about the great sacrifice that Christ made for our sins. So this was the last supper of the old dispensation of the law, but the first supper in the dispensation of grace. Secondly, we talked about the appreciation of providence. Jesus was always giving thanks. He was always praying and thanking his heavenly Father. And in this instance, as we look at Jesus taking that bread and taking the cup and giving thanks, it just nearly baffles, it boggles our mind to think that Jesus would give thanks for it when he knew exactly what that bread and the wine, that juice in the cup represented. That they represented a horrible death that he was going to go through. And yet Jesus took that bread and he took that cup and gave thanks. Now I mentioned to you last week that the word thanks is the Greek word eucharisto. And some have just, well we've actually transliterated that word into English as the word eucharist. And so there are some people who call the Lord's Supper the eucharist. And that's not really a too high churchy word for us to use. It's actually a word that comes right out of the scripture. And it speaks of Jesus giving thanks. 
Jesus gave thanks because God in his providence gave him to die, but in that death he would secure, in a supreme act of love, a people for his name. The Bible calls them a royal priesthood. It terms them as a peculiar people. We are a holy nation. And he says that this wonderful people that God has chosen is going to sing the praises of him who's called them them out of darkness, the darkness of sin, into the glorious light of the gospel. Thirdly, we talked about the ratification of the covenant. Jesus said in verse 28, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Testament means a covenant. A covenant is an agreement. And in the Old Testament times, blood was used to ratify covenants. And so here Jesus said that the ratification of this new covenant, there is a new covenant that's long ago promised to come into effect, and his death on the cross and his shedding of blood would ratify that particular covenant. Now the old covenant had to be done away with. The old covenant was a conditional covenant. It was dependent upon the obedience of the people. And it was a covenant they could never keep. They couldn't keep God's law perfectly. No person can. And that's because of our fallen human nature. But the new covenant that God gives is a different covenant because it's not dependent upon our obedience. It's dependent upon Christ's obedience. And so Christ is the only one who could fulfill this covenant perfectly, which he did in his life and in his death. Now, in Romans 5.19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, that would be Adam, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, that's our Lord Jesus Christ, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And at surety that that covenant would be applied to us, Christ shed his blood. And the shedding of his blood was the guarantee that the merits of his life would be transferred to us and they would justify us in the eyes of God. Fourthly, we talked about the remission of sins. Now the Last Supper had to be transformed into the First Supper because there was nothing at all that was done in the Last Supper that could bring forgiveness. If it could, then the Bible says that there would never be a need for a new covenant to be made. In other words, Jesus would not need to come if the old covenant was satisfactory. If people could keep that, then we don't need Jesus. But, of course, we do need Jesus because, as I said a moment ago, we can't keep the covenant. So Jesus died on the cross because there is nothing that we can do. So any time that you hear somebody say that they think that they're going to heaven because they're a good person then you can be sure that person does not understand what a sinner he is, a guilty sinner that he is, and neither does he understand the real reason that Jesus came to give his life on, a cro on the cross. He came to die because we cannot do what needs to be done. Only Jesus could do it for us. So his death is the only way that we can have forgiveness. His death is the only means of taking away the guilt of our sin. And so he promised that we would have remission of sin. That word means deliverance. It means uh, freedom. It means actually forgiveness. And that's what Jesus did. He freed us from our sins. He freed us from the guilt of our sins. He freed us from the consequences of our sin, which is death in hell. Now that's a summary. If you didn't hear the other messages... Uh, you've just got a summary, and uh, I, I think that there's enough good material in those sermons 
Not because I preach them, but there's enough in there that if you haven't heard them, go back and listen to them. Get a copy of it and listen to it and see the the wonderful things that are brought out in those particular points as we talk about the Lord's Supper. Now today, I have two important issues that I'd like to add to this. But before I do, I want us to drop back just a little bit to points three and four. And I want to add some more information concerning the ratification of the covenant and the remission of our sins. And this is because there's a very important word in the 28th verse which might be overlooked. It'll be overlooked if we don't slow down just a bit to consider every word carefully. And that is the word many. For this is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many. You might have noticed when we read Romans 5.19 that the scripture said, By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, it's important for you to note here that the Bible does not say that all are going to be made righteous. It says many are made righteous. And Jesus shed his blood in perfect agreement with Romans 5.19. The many that he shed his blood for are the ones that actually do become righteous. Isaiah wrote this in the 53rd chapter, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. I'll remind you, those are the words of God that are spoken through the prophet. But we find that Jesus himself in other places also said the same thing when he talked about giving his life for many. Now there are three scriptures that I'd like to point out to you this morning. These are important, of course, because Christ spoke them personally. Now he spoke all of the Bible to us, but here are places where Christ spoke personally to tell us who did he give his life for. Now in verse number 28 of Matthew 20, He said, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark records for us a parallel passage in which he says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now the third scripture I want to give you, defines for us who these many are. Now, here I'd like you to turn to John chapter 10, if you would. And we're going to read, uh, uh, there's more than one verse here, so we need to look at this and read some more scripture with it. And so we want to look at John chapter 10 and find out what Jesus has to say himself about who these people are that he gave his life for. Now, in John chapter 10 and verse number 11, he said, very important, he said, I am the good Shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now there you see that Jesus told us who he gave his life for. His life wasn't given for goats and rabbits and snakes and squirrels, but his life was given for the sheep. Now if you study the scriptures, you'll find that this word sheep is always synonymous with those who are his people. In other words, these are the people that are going to be in heaven. In the same conversation, if you look down in verses 14 and 15, he says again, I am the good shepherd. And he says, know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And listen, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And then still further down in the same discussion, we read in verses 26 to 28, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now the use of the word many in the institution of the Lord's Supper is very significant because in describing his death, Jesus said that there's going to be a particular group for which he would die. That he had a particular people that was in mind and that his death was going to bring them life. Now if there's anything that the Word of God teaches, it surely teaches this, that the death of Jesus Christ did everything that it was intended to do. That Christ's death was not a hypothetical remedy for sin. It's not a hypothetical salvation, but Christ died not just to make salvation possible, but he died to save people. And since there are so many people that aren't saved, then we would have to say that the pardon that's prescribed on Calvary was not for them. Jesus said specifically, he died for his sheep. And he said, these sheep know him and they follow him. He said he gave his life for them and they will have eternal life and they will never perish. Now one more time, in case you were sleeping, the ones that Christ died for are the sheep and he gives them eternal life. Now here we have conclusive statements that Christ did not die for all without exception, but as he said, he died for many. If it was all, if Christ died for all, then all would receive the benefit of his death, which he himself describes as eternal life. So Jesus gives us the results of his death. All those for whom he gave his life will receive eternal life. And I would challenge you to find one scripture that indicates that the death of Christ failed its intended purpose. So if anyone that Christ died for does not get eternal life, then he failed in part. He came short of the intended purpose. Now, I know that's painful for your predisposed positions, but what I will do is I'll take the word of God anytime over what someone has told you. Even Jesus said, speaking to his heavenly Father, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, since you're here in the Gospel of John, just turn over a few more pages to the 17th chapter, and here we see how that Christ signs, seals, and delivers the intent of his work. He's praying to the Heavenly Father, and in the second verse of John 17, in this great high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed, and I might make mention in passing that if you want to find the Lord's Prayer in Scripture, don't go to Matthew 6. That's a model prayer. That's just a model prayer. This is Jesus' prayer. This is his high priestly prayer. In the second verse he says to his Father, As thou hast given him, that is Jesus Christ, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And there you see the word many again. And we find it directly related to his death as he gave the Lord's Supper. And we find it here in John chapter 17, which not coincidentally comes on the heels of the conclusion of the Lord's Supper. Christ finished the Father's work. He gave eternal life to those that were given to him. And so you can see that the use of this word many in our Lord's Supper text is not used arbitrarily, 
but it corresponds to other places of Scripture where a particular people is considered when Christ's death is mentioned. All the ones for whom Christ died received the benefit of his death, and he says that that benefit is the remission of sin, the forgiveness of their sins. Now, what I will tell you is that there is not a system of justice in the world anywhere that tells us that crimes have to be paid for twice. You see, if Christ satisfied God for sin, and then you also have to die for sin, then something's wrong with the justice. Either the justice is not really justice, or the death of Christ was not truly substitutionary. Now, you have to tread very carefully there, because now we're into just settled doctrine in the scriptures that Christ's death was absolutely substitutionary. He took the sinner's place. And so if you deny that, you deny the purpose of the cross. But if you agree with substitution that he has taken the sinner's place, which is foundational doctrine, then you have to agree with the word many that's in our text. It can't be all, or else all would be saved. So true substitution demands it, or else we have double jeopardy. If many means all, and all are not saved, then the sacrifice failed in its purpose. Now, all of the points that I've just given you are very important theological positions. And these may or may not interest you, I don't know. But what I can't do is I can't come to the text that we're considering verse by verse and begin to explain to you what these things mean and then just leave out something, something as important as this, When Jesus is talking about his own death and whom he died for, how can we skip over that? So we have to examine all of the scriptures, no matter how much that might upset people, and what they think that Christ actually did on the cross. So it's our purpose here that we fit ourselves to the word of God, rather than having the word of God fitted to us. Now this scripture in Matthew 26 is is like so many others that tell us that Christ's death was particular. That his redemption was particular. That it was intended for a certain people. It was intended for believers. And those believers would be brought to saving faith by the effectual grace of God. Now could you reject this doctrine and still be saved? Well, actually, you can. You could reject this and you could believe if you want that Christ made a sacrifice for all the world without exception. You can believe that and maybe someday we'll go into the passages that deal with that word world. And if you believe that, you would be in the company of a lot of people, a lot of good people. But unfortunately, they rely on natural ways of thinking. And did you know that Paul dealt with that in Romans chapter 9? He already anticipated the objections that would come from a doctrine like this. And he says, your natural reasoning just isn't right. That God does what he wants to do. He's the sovereign Lord. He saves whom he pleases. And you can't do anything about that as much as you might like to. So let me try to help you just a little bit more on this. This is not a doctrine that determines whether you can be saved. I mean, there are many people that are saved with just a meager understanding of the scriptures. But... You can't fully appreciate what God has done specifically for you until you see this. Until you see this, then you must believe that Christ did nothing specifically for you, not anything more for you than he did for millions and billions of people that are now in hell. Now the way that Christ's death should be memorialized is that it's exceedingly special to us, that it's an overwhelmingly gracious sacrifice that he made. 
And if you would rather believe that salvation is a matter of your choice, you can do that. But I'm grateful that salvation was not my choice, that it was God's choice, which makes me grateful to Him rather than grateful to myself. God is the one who did this, and so no other way can I be totally grateful to Him. Let me put it to you still in another way. The call of salvation is not a cattle call. It's discriminating. Christ saw me as an individual that he would save and not part of a big herd out here that might or might not make it. Now, I know I'm mixing cattle with sheep, so let's return to the biblical metaphor. I was one of his lost sheep that he was sent to find. Now, I would propose to you that we don't really understand what it means to be a good shepherd, just like Jesus called himself. We, we, we're not going to understand this if we don't think that what Christ did was to always find his lost sheep. That he went looking for the lost sheep, and he never fails in this. He never fails to grab that sheep, to put his arms around him, to pick that sheep up and put, his on, put him on his shoulder, grab both of his legs, and take him home with him. So we never see the good shepherd out here trying to coax the sheep to come. And we don't see the good shepherd leaving the sheep and saying, well, you need to make up your mind. Are you going home with me or are you not? That's not what the good shepherd does. The good shepherd goes and he gets the sheep, he puts him on his shoulders and brings him home. And if you don't understand that, if you miss that, then you woefully missed what it really means to be a good shepherd. Now, all of these things that I'm telling you, these are metaphors for redemption accomplished and applied. That Christ intended to save, and he saves. The sheep hear his voice, and as Jesus said, they follow him. And again, I'll, I'll just put a challenge out there to you to find anywhere in the passage where it says that the sheep are going to resist the call of Jesus Christ. They never do. And that's because God has spoken to them and God has made them willing to come to him because they are his sheep. He's not going to let them go. He will effectually call them to salvation and he'll bring them home. I wanted you to get that. That just comes out of the word many in that particular verse. Now let's go on to the last two areas that I wanted to cover. Uh, we're going to stick here just a little bit longer so we don't have to go uh, into a fourth message. Number five is the anticipation of the symbol. Verse 29, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, the Lord's Supper has within it the anticipation of a glorious event. Jesus said, I am not going to drink this again. I'm not going to have supper with you again until I drink with you in my Father's kingdom. Now there's a, there's a great promise of hope that are in these words. Actually, we have two great promises that blend into one. The first one comes out of the idea that Christ was going to die. And that's, of course, what the supper memorializes. He would die. But if that statement stands alone, then that becomes the most depressing, demoralizing news the disciples could ever hear. They loved Jesus. They didn't want to be without him. And so the whole 29th verse is a tremendous promise that they would not be without him, that he would die, but the verse gives them hope because he, he intends to live again. He's not going to stay in the tomb, and because of that, he would see the disciples again, and he would enjoy fellowship with them at another supper. 
Now let me just tell you a little bit about the other supper. Let's go to Revelation chapter 19. Years ago, when I actually worked for a living, that said tongue-in-cheek, of course, but when I actually worked for a living, I, I couldn't wait to get home to supper. I mean, my wife is a great cook, and I looked forward after a hard day's work that I would come home and sit at the table, and my wife would have supper for me. Now, what you might do is just kind of take that and, and use that as a, an example of our lives, of our entire lives, because our entire lives are like one long day's work. There are struggles that we go through. There are uh, battles that we fight. We fight battles with Satan and sin, with self, with our own fleshly lust. Paul said there's a war that's going on inside of us. But here's what Jesus says. There's coming a day when we're going to rest for all of those labors. We're going to go home after a long day's work and we're going to sit down to a glorious feast and all the cares of life will be over. Revelation 19 verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. Now here we've got a scene in heaven. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now what a wonderful promise that Jesus gave his disciples in verse 29. The full effect of what he said in those verses could not have been realized until after Jesus died and gone back to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, we read there where Christ ascended into heaven and then you go on reading in the book of Acts and you see trouble begins. Their life becomes very, very hard after that. There's persecution, there's ostracism, there's beatings, there's prison... Every day was a struggle for survival for them. As they sat right here at the Lord's Supper, one of them, James, the brother of John, was the first one to be martyred. And after that, they all followed in order. They all met their deaths, not natural deaths, but all of them died at the hands of persecutors, except one, that was the Apostle John. And when the Apostle John died, or actually before he died, he was boiled in oil and we, we think that when he wrote the book of Revelation that he was a horribly disfigured man as he sat on that rock in that island writing the revelation that God gave him. But that's what ensued for the disciples, the persecution, the troubles, all the pain and the heartache. But here they had this promise that Christ gave and this strengthened them. They were going to see Christ again and they would sit down to supper with him again and then all of their fears and their labors, all of that would be left behind. And so they go to this other supper that's going to be in heaven. As Jesus, uh, as we read there rather in Revelation 19, we see fine linens that are clean and white. And that's the righteousness of the saints. That's the righteousness that's given, been given by Jesus Christ. All of their sins are washed away. All of the guilt is gone. The blood of the Lamb has washed all of that away by faith in Him. And so Jesus reclined at the table at the supper and He gave them this promise. His blood would be shed, he would die, but this friend of theirs was going to live again and he would enjoy fellowship with them again. Now that's the first aspect of the promise. It's this glorious resurrection. And we all know how important that the resurrection is to our Christian faith. If he doesn't live, we don't live. If he doesn't live, there is no reunion. All of us are lost. There is no more supper to be had. 
And so, if Christ did not include the promise here for the disciples, they don't have anything to look forward to. There isn't any reason to memorialize his death. And this is why I would tell you, never attend a church where the resurrection is treated as a myth or treated as inconsequential. Hope is dead if Christ is dead. So that's the first part. But now look at the second. He said, we're not going to do this again until we do it in my Father's kingdom. Now, I, I don't know how to express that in the minds of the disciples except with this word. Booyah! I mean, that, that, this is the whole thing to them, isn't it? This is the subject of endless inquiries. Where is the kingdom? Is there going to be a kingdom? When is that kingdom going to come? Over and over and over again, they, they express that desire to Christ. We want the kingdom. When are you going to bring it? That's our hope. That's our expectation. Is there going to be a kingdom? And the answer to that is yes, there's going to be a kingdom. Resoundingly, yes, there will be a kingdom without question. And this supper is going to be resumed in God's kingdom. And so that long discussion of chapters 24 and 25 was not with, that, was not with a vain hope. 25.31 says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And then further, we don't see it in the Matthew account, but we know that this was a part of that same night, John chapter 14, when Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he says, I, I, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Christ is telling us he's coming back for another supper. And it's going to be held in his glorious kingdom in a city whose foundations, with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And when I used to go home from work, I went to my home. I went to my little castle. A man's home is his castle, they say. My home was modest. My home was meager at best. But I have a different home. I have another home. I have a true home. And my home is a mansion with many rooms that sits on streets paved with gold. And I'm thankful for this. Caltrans and Sonoma Road Department don't maintain the roads there. There are no potholes for me to lose myself in up there. No, we have streets paved with gold. Uh, my home has an entrance with a gate that's made of pearl, surrounded by a wall of diamonds sitting on foundations of precious stones. So should the disciples have cried when Jesus told them that he was going to die? Is this a crying supper? Should they have shouted for joy instead? I think joy is what he wanted. Now they would have to go through Christ's death for sure and there would be a resurrection and they have to experience all of that but that resurrection opens up into the magnificent kingdom of God. Now I would have to ask you, do you want to miss the joys of the Lord's Supper? Christ wanted us to think of his death and there are sometimes as we partake of the Lord's Supper there is that feeling of morbidity in that we're sad uh, in one sense but on the other hand, we absolutely do rejoice because Christ's death and his resurrection opened up to us the glorious storehouse of all of God's riches. The kingdom awaits us because we're believers in Jesus Christ. So do you want to stay away from the Lord's Supper and miss the glory of God's celebration? 
I was reading an article the other day that was written by a Messianic Jew. And he said that the Passover was not really a feast. It wasn't really a celebration. The celebration came afterwards. It came after the next day and the next week as they celebrated the Feast of Weeks. But the Passover itself was not a celebration. But the Lord changed all that. Jesus changed it from a Passover to the first Lord's Supper. And folks, that is a celebration because we know in this Christ died for our sins and then he rose triumphantly from the grave. We have the promise of resurrection for all of us that believe in him and we have the promise of a kingdom. That's all represented in his death. And his death has no value unless we have that part as well. So Christ did not end the supper with, I'm going to die. Oh, he ended the supper with, I'm going to live. John 14, 19. Again, same night, yet a little while. And the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And I have to remind you that that is put right up next to verse number 28. The many for whom he died receive the benefit of verse 29. They don't fail to get verse 29. Now finally, let's finish our thoughts on the Lord's Supper with this. And that is the realizations of the ordinance. This is just sort of a summary that helps us draw final conclusions. The Lord's Supper actually reveals two extremes... Among those who are falsely called Christians and some who may in fact be Christians, but there's a wideness, there's an extreme on either end. Either it's turned into a highly significant sacrament that has saving ability, or it's turned into a largely insignificant party that really doesn't have any spiritual benefit at all. Now the first position would be that of Roman Catholicism. The supper is perverted into a mass with hocus-pocus and it's made into a requirement to receive the grace of God. The second position, the other extreme of that, is that of the fun and games churches. I heard of such a church in Petaluma, I'm sure there are many more there like it, that they turn the Lord's Supper into a party. That they set the elements out there on the table and they invite everybody to come in like they're having chips and dip. And they party at the Lord's Supper. Well, let's regather ourselves just a minute to ask three important questions. And this will help us to reach right conclusions about the Supper. The first is, what is the blessing of the Supper? Christ blessed it. And the blessing is not found in the bread or in the cup. There is no transformation of those elements. It's not turned into real, real flesh. It's the, the juice is not turned into real blood. That's what sacramentarians would have you to believe. And that's what Roman Catholics teach. The blessing is the spiritual reality of Christ himself. That it's the whole person of Christ that we look to. Not some mystical magic that's performed by a priest. Oh, the focus here is the cross in which in an uncommon act of love that God gave his son to die for us. So the focus then is the blessing of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that comes through that sacrifice, putting our eyes completely on Jesus Christ and him alone. The second question is who, is who is the blesser of the supper? Well, the blesser is Christ. And I would dare say in either of the extreme positions, either in the sacramentarian position or in the party position, the focus on Christ is lost. Now, we might think that Roman Catholicism presents to us the best option of the extremes, 
But really, they're wrapped up in the ritual and the magic that's done. And the focus then is on the priest and on you and not on Christ. Now let me explain. What we've learned is that it's Christ's obedience by which we are saved and not our own. And so what Catholicism does, it makes self the blesser and makes the priest the blesser because what they do is they retain the Old Testament covenant of works. That the way that you receive the blessing is because you do this. You receive the grace of God because you do this. Those that party hard and have the other extreme and have everybody come and have a good old time, they certainly don't focus on the solemnity that we find in the supper of Jesus Christ. Now they have, might have some joy in verse number 29, but they don't have the reverence that they should for verse number 28. So Christ is the one that's a blesser. Our eyes had to be focused on him and only him. Then thirdly, who are the blessed in the supper? If you attend the supper here, I don't think you could miss the answer to this. If you sit here silently and we sit at the feet of Jesus, don't those of you that are members and you've come, don't you feel the presence of the Lord when we take the Lord's Supper? I mean, who, couldn't, who could come and not see Jesus Christ in that? Who, who could not come with gratitude in your soul that you've been in the presence of the Lord? Oh, we're blessed. You and me. We Christians that are blood-bought, born-again believers, we are blessed. We Christians that we know for sure that Christ did know us individually... That we are the sheep of his pasture and those that he died with full expectation to bring us to glory with God. We are exceedingly blessed as we come and partake of the memorial of his death. And I can't help but take us back to the exclusivity of that sacrifice. How could we be more blessed than to realize that before the world was ever created that God chose us. And then he implemented every step that was necessary to bring us to salvation in him. He had his eye on the goal of what he would do before he ever created the first thing. And to think that God made me a part of it, and you a part of it, and you are believers in Jesus Christ, how can you not be blessed when you think about that? Christ died for you. And you can say, I know he died for me specifically. He died for me. And so every son that Christ died for is going to be brought to glory. And if that doesn't happen, it becomes a curse to us and not a blessing. And I'll tell you why. Because if he failed to do what he intended to do with his death, then we have no promise, we have no guarantee, we have no assurance that he will not fail to get us to heaven. I know he's going to complete it all. He completed the work of redemption at the cross. And guaranteed that I, as his child, would be in the glories of heaven. Now as we look at this, is it worth the time that we spent to take three messages? And I suppose that it's been somewhere around close to two hours, two and a half hours or so that we've spent explaining what happened to the Lord's Supper. Is that worth it to us? Is it worth us to break down the word of God and see the precious promises that are included in things like this? We only have two ordinances that God has given. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We ought to treat each of them with the utmost respect and reverence. There are only two pictures that the Lord gave us of our salvation. He gave us baptism. He gave us the Lord's Supper. And each of those paints a beautiful canvas of the mercy, the love, 
and the grace of God. It's Christmas. What, what more could you be thankful for than this? Jesus Christ came into the world and gave his life to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and Lord, we're just so, so ever grateful for what you've done. We thank you for our study in the Lord's Supper and these few short verses yield to us great truths from your word. Jesus was always teaching things. Every word that he said is so highly significant and I just know we haven't even touched the surface of what we could learn here. There's just so much more that we could know. Lord, speak to our hearts. Teach us these things. And we are truly thankful that you brought us to salvation by your mercy, your love, and your grace. I do pray for Lord, Lord, for someone here who doesn't understand all of the things we talked about the Lord's Supper. They never experienced that. They haven't become members of a church. They, they don't know what it's like to... to experience this blessed memorial in the way that it should be done, respecting the, the reverence for the sacrifice. Uh, we, we just pray for people who don't know you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open up their hearts to the gospel of Christ, that even right now they'd cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want this. Lord, put it upon their heart to ask. And we know, Lord, you've told us that if they ask, if we ask, if anyone asks, then eternal life will be given. Thank you, Lord, for that. We just praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.